0: Philippians 1 verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God.
1: We are in the middle of one of our two weeks of prayer during the course of the year. Uh, If you are newer to Emmanuel, we have one at the very beginning of January to begin the new calendar year. And then another at the beginning of September as we get ready for a new school year. And over the course of this week, which um, in order to make sure that we can have a family meal together on a Friday, it starts on a Friday, runs through to a Thursday, we try and pray for as many things as we possibly can. We want to pray for things that are going on in the life of our church, for individuals, for ministries, for outreach, but we also want to pray for those beyond our church, Uh, some of which we're regularly connected to and we give to, we pray with and for them, uh, and other things that come into our mind, and we we try to pray for as much as we possibly can. And and as the week goes on, there's that lovely sense of the, the fresh reminder of the privilege of praying and the right sense of the responsibility to pray and the joyful way that doing all of that binds you together. But as the week goes on, I'm sure I'm not the only person who at some point thinks, but what am I supposed to pray for? As I think about all of you and the work that we're seeking to do here in our town to tell others about Jesus, as we think about our missionaries around the world and the different ways that they're trying to do that in very different contexts, what is it helpful for us to plead with God about for them? And if you've ever asked that question, or if it's ever hindered you from praying, because you're just not entirely sure what to pray, well, verses 3 to 11 are the answer for you. Now, what Paul says here isn't the only thing that we can and should be praying about as Christians for Christians. You want to read any of the other prayers that just Paul himself prayed, let alone the whole 150 Psalms, which are full of prayers, but just looking at the prayers that Paul prayed a lot of peas there. Um, There's a whole variety. There are seasons when there's people that he's writing to are really struggling with an issue that's a problem in the church. Then there are times where there's a sin struggle in the church, and he's praying about all of those kinds of things as well. But God willing, most of our prayers for each other and for our other Christian friends should be filled with thankfulness and joy. And what I hope we're going to see this morning is not only how Paul prays, but also the basis for his prayer. There's a living loving relationship between Paul and the Philippians that forms the foundation for everything that he prays for so that that relational basis is then the platform from which all of the prayer comes. And and God willing, we will learn lessons from both aspects because I want to learn to pray. I hope we all want to learn to pray better, more deeply, more longingly, But we also need to keep building that relational foundation which is at the very bottom, as it were, of the prayers that then come as we pray for one another. And what Paul does in this passage is he gives us three specific aspects of how we should pray for one another. So verses 3 to 6, we're to pray with joy. 7 to 8, we're to pray with longing affection. And 9 to 11, we're to pray for biblical love to abound. That's where we're going to go. And we're going to start verses 3 to 6. We are to pray with joy. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. That might sound completely unachievable to you. (laughs) You might have read that and thought, well, that's the kind of thing that only an apostle could say. Because that's not normal life. Or maybe you're thinking, well, that's just spiritually naive. Because relationships are more complicated than that. Or maybe it's not. And actually, maybe Paul could genuinely pray all of those things for the Philippians. And that's just another reminder that the Philippians were this super holy bunch of Christians. And we're not that. So do you see how it's really easy for all of us to kind of make excuses that detach us from the power of what Paul is saying? Paul's not naive. And the Philippians weren't perfect. Life in Philippi wasn't as difficult as it was in Corinth. But by the time we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul has to speak to an issue between Eodia and Syntyche because there's a problem in the church. All of this, always praying for joy for all of them, all the time, isn't because they're perfect Christians. It's because Paul is choosing deliberately to focus on two things that are true of them. And the first one's in verse 5. He always prays for them with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Ever since this Philippian church was founded, they kind of viewed Paul as one of their own, which makes sense in that he was the person who brought the gospel to the city and began the church. But but it went deeper than that because they partnered with him. Paul's using that that fellowship word that you might have come across a number of times in the New Testament, koinonia. That's the same word here. Paul's describing the fact that they have shared with, they have supported and prayed for and loved him, even when his work as a missionary took him hundreds of miles away from Philippi and did so for years. So we saw last week, it's probably 10 years between when Paul wrote this letter and when he was first with them and planted their church. And they kept coineering, partnershipping with Paul for that entire time. Brothers and sisters who are that faithful are worth their weight in gold, and that is a great reason of joy for Paul. As we pray for each other and our missionaries this week, it's right for us to stop and think, am I a reason for joy to others? Like the Philippians were to Paul. That's a good question to ask. Now I know there's lots that's different. Paul's an apostle, Paul founded their church, they supported him as a full-time ministry, in full-time ministry for 10 years. All of that's very different. I get that. But we're still partnering with each other in the gospel. So you think about some of all of the many one-another's throughout. The New Testament, God has put us into our church families so we would love one another, admonish one another, care for and show hospitality to one another, forgive one another, speak the truth to love to one another, submit to one another, all the while as we seek to build one another up and tell the peoples of our town about the Lord Jesus. There is an endless list of ways in which, even if you're not an apostle who's a full-time missionary who's been supported for 10 years by the church you planted, you are still Fellowshipping in the gospel with one another so there's a really good question to think about as we pray for one another during this week as others think of me in the right senses we're not looking for anything that would boost our pride here but do others think of me have they reason to think of me with joy because of our partnership in the gospel that's a good question to ask personally. It's also a good question to ask about our missionaries. Um, Again, if you're new to the church, I'm reasonably new to the church too. I've only been here about six and a half years and long before I came, this church family had a heart for mission. It's always had a heart for mission. And you can see as you pick up on some of the things that have happened over many, many years, how those partnerships have been deepened and lived out with people. So, I mean, one of the most obvious names that comes to my mind is with Gavin and Elaine Charlton in South Africa. They work with um, orphans there in Muso and cozy and, and that partnership has existed for decades. And it's taken on different forms. Money's been given. Prayers have been said at very specific points for very specific projects. And people have gone and visited. And camps have been run. And there's been a huge amount of support... And I genuinely think, I've not asked them, but I genuinely think, if you were to say to Gavin and Elaine, when you think about Emmanuel Church, what comes to mind? I think it would be a thankfulness for partnership in the gospel. and That has zero to do with me. Now, I pray that all of our missionaries would have that same experience because that's the kind of mission-supporting church we want to be. We want to be a church like Philippians were to Paul. So that when Ian and Brenda Dark in Costa Rica or John and Sean in Japan or Ed and Katie in Central Asia or Martin and Claudia in Kenya, whenever any of them stop and think about the brothers and sisters in Leamington, it would be with joy for the partnership in the gospel. But Paul prays for the Philippians with joy for another reason too. Verse 5 focuses on them. Verse 6 focuses on God's grace in their lives. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Think back to Lydia for a minute. Uh, When Paul and his companions first went to Philippi, about 10 years before this letter was written... They went to the city, and once they got settled on the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river. And they went there because that's where they were hoping to find some faithful Jewish believers that they could begin to share the gospel with. No men turned up. But there were a group of faithful, God-fearing women. And as Paul and the others began to speak and preach to them, Lydia, who is a local businesswoman, responded to Paul's message. She's the very first convert in Philippi. She became part of the hub of this church. But what's really interesting is, is you read Luke's account of what happened in Acts 16. Partway through Acts 16, we read this. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's the second foundation for Paul's joy in verse 6. When Paul thought about Lydia, when he thought about the Philippian jailer, when he thought about all of the other people that filled this church, he knew that they loved him in the Lord and he loved them in the Lord, but that's not the greatest reason for his joy. The greatest reason for his joy is that God loved them. And the wonderful truth about the fact that God loves them and the hope that comes out of that is what verse 6 is saying. This is why it matters so much. What God begins, God finishes. So every time Paul thinks about Lydia and the Philippian jailer and every other member in that church, Paul's reminded God had saved them in the past, God is keeping them in the present, and God will keep them for all eternity into heaven and the new creation. And when you know that God will keep someone you love safe for all eternity, there is nothing greater that will bring you joy. That doesn't mean to say that there isn't anything for the Philippians to do. There is. The whole of the prayer that we're going to look at in verse 9 to 11 is is looking at specific things that they need to grow in and things that they can pursue, but Paul's ultimate confidence in them, now and forever, being safe in Jesus, does not rest on him and it doesn't rest on them. It rests on God, on a God who never changes, on a God whose grace never runs out, and on a God whose grace will bring his people home. That's why Paul always prayed for joy with every remembrance of them. Second way Paul prays, verses 7 to 8, is with longing affection. Paul had a good reason for all of this joy and thankfulness that he's talking about. And he picks that up in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And then there's some debate about whether what follows is developing that idea of why they're in his heart or whether it's a second reason that um, he prays for them with affection. But he goes on to say, I've had you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, I've read every commentary that I own in Philippians. I'm still not entirely sure which is the best translation, whether it's one idea that he explains or whether they're two separate ideas. I don't think it really matters because the big idea is the same. Paul loves... These brothers and sisters, and one of the reasons that he loves them is that they share God's grace with him. So think about that from the two sides. So from Paul's perspective, he's a prisoner for the sake of Christ and the gospel. But at the same time, he tells the Ephesians and the Colossians and Timothy that he suffered on behalf of the churches. So he's suffering for for God and the gospel, but he's also suffering for the churches. And from the Philippians' perspective... They're entering into his suffering, relying upon God's grace in every way that they can too. So they are financially sending helpers and gifts to support and sustain him. Spiritually, they are praying for him with that kind of prayerful support that, as he remembers it, it fills him with joy. And at the same time, they are living faithfully for Jesus in Philippi, just like Paul was Knowing that, it was entirely possible they might end up in prison just like Paul was. You see how this sharing works in both directions. All of them were sharing and suffering together, whether or not Paul is free to run around and tell people about Jesus or stuck in a prison. And knowing their partnership in the gospel, Paul could honestly say, verse 8, God can testify, meaning this is really, really true. (laughs) How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, at the very least, that means I care for you in the same way that Christ cares for his people. I think Paul might be saying more here. There's no reference to imitation here. I, I think what Paul is probably getting at, actually, is that Christ's love for the Philippians is being lived out through Paul's love for them? That's what it means to be united to Christ. That's why Jesus could say to people at the end of time, why were you, why were you not feeding or ministering or caring for me? Because you didn't minister and care for my people. I've said at the beginning. That Paul doesn't just teach us how to pray, he also shows us the basis for prayer. Paul loved these Christians and he prayed for them with longing and affection, but what's the basis for the affection? Why does he love them so much? There's lots of ways, but in part it's because they were sharing together in what God was doing. This group of people were partnering together to serve God, even if it meant that one of them might end up in prison. So here's the key point from verses 7 and 8. Serving together grows prayerful longing for each other. Serving together grows prayerful longing for each other. Now, that's a challenge for all of us. But it's a particular challenge if um, whether Emmanuel is your home church or whether you're visiting us today and somewhere else is your home church, it's a particular challenge if you're not yet really committed to your local church. It's um, going to impact your prayer life if you stay on the fringe. Now, I understand there's lots of reasons why you might yet be drawn into the heart of the church. Maybe that you're new, maybe that the previous circumstance was difficult, and there's lots of reasons why we need to cover all of that with grace. But can I address everything else as well as that? So you come to a church uh, uh, like Emmanuel, a reasonable size, and it's quite tempting to think, oh, it's great, I can just come here and be fed. I don't have to really get stuck in, so I'm not going to get physically tired. I don't really have to invest too much, so I'm unlikely to get emotionally hurt. And actually, I don't really need to get too vulnerable with people, so I'm not going to experience too much discouragement spiritually either. And all that's true. You could do all of that. But being on the fringe is not how God has made us. And if you stay there, it will damage your spiritual life. And in particular, in this context, it will damage your prayer life what draws us together and and stirs up this longing affection is sacrificially serving alongside one another. So what might that look like? Well, for some, perhaps, um, now is a good time at the beginning of a year to think about really committing to a church and joining the membership of that church so that you are choosing to, be identified with those people and care for them as they care for you. For others, it might be, actually, you're a member of the church, but it would be a good thing to start volunteering in some way and and joining a team so that you can build those those co-laboring muscles and longing together. Others of you would love to do that, but you can't. And just physically being there, either because of job or health or whatever, it's not an option. But might it be possible for you to co-labor with some of those ministries? Could you reach out to some of the people involved before and after so that you can be prayerfully praying for them in the window when they're doing it? Or maybe as we go through our week of prayer and you look through the list of all the different missionaries that we're going to be supporting this week, you could think of following up on their newsletters and reaching out to them personally. And deepening that sharing in God's grace with them. Serving together grows our prayerful longing for each other. We're to pray for joy. We're to pray with longing affection. And then Paul tells us exactly how he prays for the Philippians in verses 9 to 11. Where we're to pray with biblical, for biblical love. To abound. So I've added the word biblical there, not because I'm, you know, some dry, reformed guy, but because Paul's talking about a very specific kind of love. He's not saying, oh, I really just hope that they'd become a kind of hippie-loving kind of church, a kind of love-struck teenager zone. He's talking about something very specific. He wants their love to abound more and more. In fact, in the NIV, to smooth it out a little bit, we've lost the word still. So it's not just, I want your love to grow, or I love, want your love to abound, or I want your love to abound more, or I want your love to abound more and more. It's, I want your love to abound still more and more. He really wants his people to be a loving people. But the kind of love that he has in view, it's a very particular love. And to describe it, he tells us two ways this love grows two purposes for growing this love and two fruits that come from this growing love. And when you've got those three pairs together, then you can understand what this love is and how we can then pray about it for one another. So, two ways this love grows. It grows in knowledge and it grows in depth of insight. Our postmodern world loves to spout the lie that um, love and knowledge are probably not friends. In fact, they're probably enemies. Because the mantra of our day is love is just love, isn't it? So it's not going to be constrained by anything. It's it's not going to be fueled by anything. Love's just love. Well, I don't know what love is love really means, but it certainly doesn't mean a biblical love. Here is love described by reference to a a word for knowledge that's used about 20 times in the New Testament. And every single time that it's used, it is used to describe something about God. But not academic head knowledge all about theology stuff. That's not the kind of knowledge that leads to love. Paul's talking about that kind of knowledge that goes from your head so fills your heart that it changes what you do with your hands. It's the lived experience knowledge. Now, before you think, oh, do we have to talk about knowledge when it comes to love? Can't we just love everybody? Well, you know in your relationships with each other that this is exactly how human relationships grow. So if you've got a newly married couple... How is their love for one another going to grow? They don't just sit there and think lovely thoughts about one another. They're looking and observing and thinking, what is it about you that I could do to bless you? How could I care for you? How could I surprise you and bring joy to you? And all of those things are being done as you Learn about them, not because you're going to sit a test, <laughs> but because you want to love them. Now, to some degree, the same is true when it comes to how we think about growing in our knowledge of God, that we would grow in our love for him and for everybody else. So let's be really specific. How can we pray for fellow Christians to grow in this kind of love? What is it that we're going to pray for? On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if you're able to join us, and in private throughout the rest of our lives? What is it that we pray for so that their love could increase in knowledge? Well, we should pray. Here's, here's a couple examples. We could pray that God would grow their lived experience of the goodness of his character and the fact that he always keeps his word. In one sense, that's an aspect of knowledge. You're learning more about the goodness of God's character and about the way that he's faithful and always keeps his word. How might God answer that prayer? What would it actually look like if God answered that prayer that we're praying because we want their love to grow in knowledge? In my limited experience and from what I have read of church history, it often is answered by God bringing circumstances into someone's life in order to humble them and to grow their dependence upon God and to make them treasure his word more than they have ever treasured it before because whatever the circumstance may be and however hard it may be, they're reminded that their comfort and hope is not in this world. They are looking more to God, trusting his character, clinging to his promises. And they love him more. See how the knowledge infuels the love? Second example, we could pray very specifically. We want their love to grow and abound more and more in knowledge. So we could pray that they would grow in their understanding of God's inexhaustible grace. That's a wonderful thing that is only true of God. His grace never runs out. I love my kids to bits And to my shame, there are times when my grace towards them runs out. God's never does. How might God answer that prayer? Well, again, how how has God answered that prayer in your life when you think about it? God, I want you to show me more of your limitless grace. What normally happens in my life is God's Spirit... Exposes another bit of my life where I am still struggling in sin or denying his goodness or refusing to let his spirit change me and make me more like Jesus. So you're thinking, hang on a minute, that's not growing your love. What does it do? It brings you back to the gospel to remind you of your need to keep on repenting so that you can keep clinging to that wonderful life-transforming work of the Spirit, at which point you are reminded afresh of the limitless grace of God. What's happened? Your knowledge of God's grace has grown and your love for Him has grown. Don't let anybody tell you that knowledge and love are not friends. True love deepens our knowledge for one another and in this sense, ultimately, for God. And out of that, when you think about what it means to know that God never changes, that he always keeps his promises, that his grace is inexhaustible, when you think about what it means for us as Christians to be like him, that's then going to transform the way that we continue to love one another. So That's how this knowledge infused love is going to change the way that we live as christians same time got to run paul prays that the philippians love would abound in depth of insight and that's the only time that phrase appears in the new testament but paul's clearly got this idea that this love that's filled with knowledge is going to help us be wiser and wiser in the way that we live our lives There's the two ways this love grows. Verse 10, Paul explains the two purposes for growing this love. One's for now, the other's for the future. For today, this love makes Christians able to discern what's best. I think you've lived life long enough to know that what's hardest is not usually knowing what's right and wrong. What's hardest is knowing the difference between what's good, better and best. And that's what Paul's talking about here. This um, word for um, discern was a word that was used in Paul's day to talk about fake currency. There's a load of fake money uh, moving around in their circles and, and to have the ability to know, I don't know how they did it, whether they stuck it in their mouth or whether they put it under a fire, I've no idea, but they needed to know whether the currency was real to discern whether it was true currency. And that's the same kind of wisdom application that Paul's calling for here, that as we grow in love, uh, sorry, our love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, it's going to help us know what is good, better, or best. And that's ordinary everyday life. That's which school subjects do I choose for GCSEs and A-levels? Which university should I think about going to for all sorts of reasons, one of which is, is it close to a good church? It's which job should I think about applying for? It's which person should I think about marrying? It's, it's what should I be thinking about when I come to retirement? How am I going to use this very new and different season of life in order to glorify God and be a blessing to others? It's every bit of all of that that we would be able to discern what is best, but it also helps us be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We want to live today so that our lives now are preparing us for that great tomorrow. And only lives that are abounding in this kind of love will do that. Uh, this word pure um, in Paul's day it was made up of two words. Um, it really was. It was made up of two words. Um, one was uh, son, and one was to judge. And the idea was that um, in order to make sure that the money you were paying for a particular piece of pottery was valid, you didn't want to buy something that actually was full of cracks, and some dodgy dealer had managed to just polish up a little bit. So, the way that it, you would know that it was a pure or a sincere piece of pottery was you could lift it up to the sunlight and test whether there were cracks coming that you could see because they'd filled the cracks with wax. That's the contrast that Paul's making here. We want our lives. Not to be like that. Not to be papered over with wax. Not because ah, we make our lives perfect. That sinner's perfection comes from Christ. But the more that we live our lives being shaped by this love that's abounding in knowledge and depth of insight, the more our lives are going to become more and more like Jesus. So that they were pure on the day of Christ. He then closes with these two fruits for growing love. Here and now. We're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. But ultimately, the greatest longing for all of our lives, for all of our prayers, is that we would live to bring glory and praise to God. That is the foundation for everything, and that is the goal for everything. I said at the very beginning that Paul doesn't just teach us how to pray, he teaches us the basis for prayer. So humanly speaking... He prays for the Philippians with great joy because of their partnership in the gospel. There's a relationship there that has supported him. Spiritually speaking, he looks at the Philippians and he prays for joy with them because he knows that the work that has been begun in them is a work that God has begun, that God will keep doing and that God will finish. But ultimately, the basis for his prayer is verse 11. As their love... Abounds as their lives are transformed. Paul's great prayer is that they bring glory and praise to God. That is the ultimate basis for all of our prayers. And as we close, can I ask you an honest question? Is that enough for you? That's a slightly strange question from a preacher. Is it enough that we bring praise and glory to God? Of course it's enough. But is it enough in the way that you pray and I pray? Or all too often, is there a lurking little subplot of pride in our prayers? Where we can pray big and wonderful things, But actually what we're really hoping for at the end of the day is that God would answer those prayers in such a way that we receive some of the glory. (coughs) Wouldn't it be a good thing, not just over the course of this week of prayer, but over the course of this year, for us to keep coming back to that pride-killing, God-glorifying longing that all that we do would be to the praise and glory of God.